Hello, I'm Neil Moody, editorial hairstylist, YouTuber, Instagrammer, Facebooker, interviewer, etc. And welcome to the second series of my In Bed with Neil Moody podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified about new episodes. Apologies for my slightly husky voice, but I've been recovering from laryngitis. And luckily, this episode was recorded when I wasn't sick. So it's just for this particular intro, I have this husky tone. This episode forms the third and final part of a special trilogy, featuring the New York-born Francesca Sorrenti. Francesca and I are also joined on this trilogy by our dear friend Carl Pluka, stylist and editor of Beauty Papers magazine, who I invited to join me to co-host the interview. This special trilogy of interviews, Carl and I have chosen to call The Godmother. Like Mario Puzzo's fictional Sicilian-American family of the Godfather series, the Sorrentis are to fashion what the Corleones were to organise crime. Part two ended with Francesca about to explain why she put her camera down for the last time. We pick up on her story from that point, which was not long after her son David passed away. Francesca takes us through to the current day with this final part of her interview. So sit down, put your feet up and get super comfortable with a nice cup of tea for this third and final part of Francesca's epic story. A lot of people don't understand why I, I put down my camera. I mean, I didn't put it down right away. I put it down in about a year and a year and a half after David passed. Uh, but I wasn't doing that much work uh, because I was refusing jobs. Why were you refusing jobs? I was just always crying. I cried for years, you know. Uh, Especially, I was a a fucking water fountain. I could not stop crying. And I remember one of the most amazing people was Christian Lacroix. I I was supposed to do his campaign right after Dave died. And I said, I can't do this, Christian. I'm just too broken. And he said, you know what, You, I want you to do this. I want you to overcome this. And I know it, he didn't mean overcome the grief. He meant being able to shoot again. And I remember everybody around me was, you know, the model was Mila. I cried through the whole thing. I said, you know, I cannot put the client through this. And uh, I didn't see what I used to see. I was dead, you know, that the core, my core was dead. And then someone had come up to me and go, oh my God, those shoes are amazing. And I'm like, really? I'm going to talk about shoes right now? Like I really give a shit? And I just, little by little, it just, then I would just take money jobs here and there. Yeah. Because I needed money. I remember the time um, after David passed, because obviously I was living in New York at working at Interview, and you put a lot of energy into helping other people. It's funny because I'm not very maternal, but sadly I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always helping. I don't know whether it's the whole Italian thing, uh, but I would never watch like somebody would leave, say, oh, Francesca, can I leave my kid over the house? I have to run out. And I'd be, oh, my God. You know? <laughs> I was very maternal towards my own children. But then I found myself always 
helping underdog, helping people, young people in need of help. Even through my life, I've, you know, I've stopped street fights. One involved a rifle where someone wanted to kill someone. And I ran in and I said, if you do this, you'll never see your children again. You'll end up in jail. Yeah, yeah. And he threw his gun back in the car and ran off. <laughs> you know, I've stopped fist fights and I'm always doing that. And so, you know, my son and Steve, they were going to get killed. You know, and then the same goes, you know, after Dave passed, we have to realize what was going on. Mm. Models were being pushed. But but no one was challenging the industry, the fashion industry at the time, and, to, and you were doing that. Let's look at the history of music and fashion. You know, I, I went through the 60s, and that was a huge revolution. And the, and the 70s, I mean, the, the 90s was a revolution. It was very subtle. But, you know, there was grunge and, and there was Kurt Cobain. And there, there was, you know, young photographers. Everybody was coming out of a recession. Yeah. The youth culture seemed like what was going to save fashion. I think the fashion industry, sadly, after heroin, the so-called heroin chic, the word got created with David after yeah. he passed I had said at the funeral parlor this is not cool this is drugs this is not chic this is heroin because at the time we really didn't know what it was because we hadn't gotten back David's drug testing that they do that, that literally takes three months Ingrid was there and she uh, said, heroin chic. This is definitely a heroin chic era. And that's how it started. But heroin chic was not during David. It was after the word, the, the, the phrase. I know one of your things was to separate that phrase away from David, isn't it? People have sort of taken that phrase and run with it. And I have to say, I hate it. I've never liked it as a phrase. Well, yeah, it was an era. It was definitely, if you look at the era in itself, it got out of control at one point. I mean, because very powerful people who were in the background liked what was going on. Yeah. You know, they liked the idea that there's this movement and that they wanted to wear that label and this label because that picture was so controversial and I want to be a part of that controversy. You know, yeah. I want to be that cool kid who's yeah. wearing that outfit, uh, whatever it takes. You know, yeah. if I need to take drugs or I need to, like, be in weird situations, I'm going to do it. And then, well, this is so cool because I don't have to wear all that makeup or do my hair. I can just, you know, yeah. I can be grunge. Mm. You know, I could be part of this movement. Uh, and a lot of uh, young girls and boys fell into that pattern because of peer pressure. They wanted to be part of the crowd or mm. wanted to be part of the in crowd. And everybody, you know, within the modeling agencies, you really can't blame them because all the bookers were under, you know, 20. Mm, you know, yeah. everybody was 20-something. Yeah. And the older people wanted to be hip and cool, so they weren't saying anything. 
Yeah. You, you know, so it's nobody's fault, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's just um, going with the trend, you know. The, the clothes became more somber. Everything became dark. Yeah. But then, and it was a big backlash against the whole sort of Amazon supermodel thing, wasn't it? Where everybody was six foot tall and, you know, kind of like, I guess, you know, people like Linda Christie, who are beautiful, but I think, you know, Kate was the opposite of that. And so then all the other models were as well. Yeah, everybody all of a sudden switched from that healthy look, because it was that persona, even though it wasn't, because then we have to remember there was Coke in the picture. That was the big 80s drug. I mean, drugs will, will always be there. Uh, but then now with heroin, kids started to uh, die. Kids started to lose their minds. A journalist asked me, if you could build a monument, what would you build? And I said, I would build a syringe, the height of a skyscraper, and write the names of all the children and people who have fallen to heroin. A little did I know this was going to be, you know, part of my life. And then David started to feel, you know, not feel well uh, physically. You know, his stomach, his back, his legs. I mean, he always suffered with these things, but... It started to get worse for him. He would try, you know, a Percocet here and there, and then he'd get sick, so he'd take a half. And then somehow, a couple of months prior to him passing, he took a, he took heroin and got very sick, ended up in the hospital. And then I think at that point he realized wait a minute, I just have to have a tiny bit. And that's what he did occasionally, not a lot. I'd have to say from when he first started and got sick, maybe 10 times. But always, in fact, the coroner said that there was not enough heroin in him to kill a fly. So was it more about David taking physical pain away? Yes, it was. But that's why he smoked like a fiend. And why I allowed it, because I knew how much it meant to him. Yeah. You know, his stomach was a mess, his back was a mess, his feet were a mess, you know. And then he, but in the whole picture, you know, when I look at his life, he was very lucky. He was the most luckiest kid ever. He was able to make his dreams come true. He worked he was, you know, made good money as a photographer for someone who that young. He had a beautiful girlfriend. Yeah. He, he had great friends who, to this date, still come around. Yeah. You know. Um, Everyone adored him, didn't yeah. they? You know, and he was loved. He lived 24 years later. February 4th will be 24 years that he's left. And still, people, I still get messages on Instagram, DMs, you know. And then uh, about seven years ago, this young man showed up and said, you know, I know about David and I'd like to do my thesis on him for college. Is so I, Yeah, and I said, how do you know? He goes, about, how do you know about David? And he says, well, you know, I saw the, I was went to the library and there was this book open on a page 
that was mentioning him. And, you know, I think it's so weird. There's always things like that happening. Yeah. You know. What did you think, though, when he approached you first? Were you a bit sort of like, oh, no, I don't want to No, it wasn't even that. You know, I, I had other people at the time come and want to know. I do, I would say yes, and then I'd say no, because I wouldn't even say no. I just wouldn't pick up the phone. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, uh, and then I'd wind up in bed, and I'd wonder, what the hell am I doing in bed now? And I realized that I wasn't able to accomplish much. I did accomplish. I started designing books for social and environmental issues, and that was fabulous because it was away from fashion, but in, and at the same time, it was bringing me closer to creative work. Because even then, I took the fashion. You know, it's very, it's like, I'm going to design, you know, a social environmental book that people are going to want to have on their coffee table. Yeah. You know, so I did water culture. And I did it along with Jean-Michel Cousteau. And I asked 100 photographers around the world, all different types from fashion to everything, you know, to fashion, uh, even as uh, an astronaut who took pictures from space and to underwater photographers, and they all donated their picture for this project. And then I said, you know what? We can't just have a photo book. We have to have, a... so my friend who I did it with, she said, well, then, you know, let's have a great intro. And I said, no. I said, Nobody reads the intro. I said, why don't we do interviews? Why don't we interview famous people who are involved in water? Because the book was Water Culture, who can tell us about the situation. So at the time, I think I did the book in 2004. At the time, I interviewed Robert Kennedy, who uh, was involved in uh, a water project here in America, uh, Gorbachev who is also involved in water project. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And it was a Q&A. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people love Q&As. So yeah. I did the whole thing Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> and so you'd see 10, 20 pictures, and then you'd see a Q&A. Then you'd see another 10, 20 pictures. And I have to say, they sold 45,000 copies. Uh, and believe it, the majority of the books were sold to Coca-Cola, who gave the book to all their clients. <laughs> well, they uh, used a lot of water. Yeah. A lot of water. And they, uh, it was also in every, you know, Barnes and Nobles and every bookstore around the world. So I have to say, you know, even though I wasn't doing fashion, I was. And I did that for a while. I've done seven books altogether, always hitting on social issues. So here I am working on my books, and then I took a break. I get this call from Charlie. Uh, first, he he called Mario. Oh, he went he went straight to Mario. <laughs> <laughs> and Mario said, "Listen, I'm not in charge of David's archives. You have to speak to my mother." He emailed me. I responded, and then uh, I met him. And in the meantime, he had a website, and I I really was impressed. I said, "Wow." And then when he showed up, this scrawny little kid, you know, with glasses and, you know, so reserved, I guess, you know, appearances fool you. I was very impressed. And I said, okay. And then we talked again. And then I said, I'm going to give you a list of names. 
I guess he under, he didn't know that I knew everybody. So I gave him a list of names, and these people then called me and said, who's this guy? And I said, you can do it. He's going to do David's video. And who is he? Do you trust him? Blah, blah, blah. I said, you know what? I've got to trust somebody at this point. And so he did interviews. He interviewed me for first. And it, it was very interesting process. And then I clammed up again. I wouldn't return his calls. And Steve got involved, said, you know, you started this ball rolling. You have to finish it. What made you clam up, do you think? Depression, you know, uh, that darkness that, you know, once losing David was such a shock, you know, you say goodbye to somebody and then they're gone, you know. And I had the premonition and that night, you know, I made sure I made all his, I made sure he had his favorite meal. Mario had come by. They had an argument and they made up that night Venina came by surprisingly so I had this whole family and then I remember lighting up all these candles and saying why am I doing this why am I lighting these candles and then I remember Murphy Brown this TV show that I watched religiously at the time was on and I didn't want to watch it and I listened to this opera that David liked and I was sitting in the chair, and then David says, Mom, I'm leaving. And he goes, you're listening to opera? I said, yeah. He says, yeah, you know, I love this. I said, yeah. And then he heads for the door, and I go, David. And he goes, what, Ma? I said, you know, I love you. And he goes, I love you too. And that's the last. So it was all, it was a sign that he was leaving. Because it was, you know, Mario coming, not speak. They had a huge fight. They hadn't spoken for a month. And here Mario shows up to make up with David. Yeah. You know, then there's uh, Vanina, who is, you know, this elusive butterfly, shows up. And then all three of them were sitting at the dinner table eating a meal that I had prepped for David. But prior to that, I was in Mexico with David. I had done a shoot in L.A., and then I said to Steve, do you mind if we all take, because David was with me. Yeah. Because I want, James and David were with me on this shoot. After the shoot, I said to Steve, I don't want to go home. Why don't we take David and go to Puerto Vallarta and show David what he, and let's do everything for David. This yeah. is David's trip. So we took him on the shoot. We stayed at this hotel. We allowed him. I knew he wasn't going to be able to find drugs. We went swimming. We went hiking. He went bungee jumping. It was all around him. And then we went home, and the next day he died. So it... Meant to be, wasn't it? It was meant to be, you know. And I started to believe in faith. You know, things do happen i've always been a sensitive i've always well i totally understand how someone approaching you to do a project like this would be quite terrifying and especially something which involves so much of you know your you opening up in even even letting someone go through the archive it must have been 
No, no, nobody went through the archive. I sat sat with him through the archive. The archives could only be done in this apartment. So after you clammed up, Steve talked you out of... Well, Steve talked me out of it three years in a row. Because it took seven years. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd clam up, then I'd be okay, then I'd clam up, and then I'd be okay. You know, I have to explain depression, you know, is what it is. It, it Sometimes it can happen when you least expect it. You know, yeah. the dark cloud, you yeah. know. And I, I was never depressed prior to David. You know, yeah, of course yeah. I was depressed occasionally, uh, but yeah. not clinically. Yeah. And I, I realized that I had become a clinically depressed. And I've always uh, tried to help myself. I never... In the beginning, I tried to go the route of, uh, you know, taking medication. It just didn't work with me. So then I went the health route, taking vitamins, building up my, you know, my immune system, building up my energy levels, uh, going to the gym, working out. But there was always that moment where I would freak out, go to bed and stay there for a couple of days. And then I'd say, what are you doing? Get up again. And this was on and off for a while. I've had to live with doing a film, finally, doing a book. And people were telling me, how do you feel? And I'm like, I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. I mean, yeah, it's bittersweet. When Dave turned 18, I took him to Disneyland. I said, you know, you always want to go to Disneyland. I know you're 18, but we're going to Disneyland. (laughs) And he said, fine. And we had such a great time. We had, he was such a hoodlum. (laughs) Yeah, hoodlum in real life and a hoodlum. I mean, he would, the last day we were there, he said, I'm going to run in because I want to see something. I said, we don't have a ticket. He said, don't worry, I'll get in. (laughs) He got in. It's got the most incredible security. (laughs) So then I'm sitting in the car waiting and waiting, and he's not coming. So I said, you know what? Fuck this. So I go to the gate, and I said, you know, my son walked in, and he's not coming out. Can I go look (laughs) for him? And they let me in. So we spent another day in Disney. (laughs) And that was, you know, him sneaking onto rides. Yeah, trying yeah. to run, he there was this um there were these three heavy set black women from New York mm-hmm. with their kids. He tries to sneak up little at a time, and he gets to them, and they go, "Where do you think you're going, boy?" Because <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just no, don't know. You're not going anywhere. We're from New York. They go, "We're from New York. You think you're going to get past us?" So they start laughing. So all of a sudden, we're online with them at the beginning of the line because they said, stay with us. So it was really cool. But that was his personality. But anyway, it was always, I always felt when he was, when he got sick, I had told my kids, I said, you know, sadly, Mario, I don't think David's going to make it past 20. And I was, through my lifetime, I was always a sensitive. I always could feel things happening, and they would happen, you know. And, and yeah, yeah. 
And with all of this, I am a very scientific person. Uh, but I feel that what we call spiritualism is a part of science, and we call it we call it spiritualism because we don't understand it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you that. know. So it it truly is, you know. And there's so many things that happen. I can't remember a lot of them, but they just they just happen. And um, but it's not like once it's like once a week ever since we started this this project, you know. And then the film it was. There was a lot of, within the contract, it was sort of, you're not just doing a film. (laughs) (laughs) We have to see what you're doing. We have to help you with the editing. So we we had meetings here looking at one, you know, first edit. No, no, take that out. Put that in. You know, and he was amazing, Charlie. You know, he understood. Uh, I mean, not to say that it was us, but... It was a collaboration. Yeah, uh, but it was it was amazing to see actually when we saw the screening in London last year, the, how prolific David was and how what the body of work that he left for someone so young is incredible. Mm. That just I was blown away by that, Fran. Yeah, you know, and, and right after that, you know, we had an exhibition here in New York. Yeah, mm. and it was mind blowing. Over 500 people showed up on the opening. Yeah. It was like close to 800 people. I mean, there were people outside that were blocking the street. I mean, unbelievable. I had never seen anything like that. Uh, And it was so hot down there. And it was so crowded. And the, the exhibition did phenomenally. We sold so many... Had no idea we were going to sell that much. You know, we knew we were going to sell some, but not not to the proportions. So did the exhibition then encourage the book? Do you feel like that was then a good next step? Well, what had happened for the book then, sometime in August, David Owen from Idea Books and Angela Hill called me up and said, you know, how can we see the? How could we see this video, this uh, documentary? So I just automatically, which I've never done before, I said, "Why don't you come over to my house?" I didn't even know them. I said, "You could watch it on my mega TV." <laughs> Girl, that's a big TV. <laughs> you can watch it, but I want to tell you, I'm not going to watch it with you. I'm going to go. Uh, my apartment is pretty big. It's a three bedroom. I said, you know, I'm going to go hang out in the bedroom and you two can watch it. So they watched it. And then afterwards, they said, so are we going to do the book? And that's how that came about. At first, I said, well, who's going to design this? You know, and who am I going to get to, to, you know, and I'm thinking of all the famous people I know who are creative <laughs> directors. And I said to myself, you know what? Why are you undervalidating yourself? Yeah, exactly. I said, you know, who knows him more than you? I said, how can I do this to myself? I've done seven books. I've picked the paper. I've picked the printer. I've, (laughs) I've picked everything. And I've worked alongside of the graphic, you know, of art directors, telling them what to do. Yeah. I wasn't taking the credit. I was giving them the credit, but I was annoying them because 
It's either you do what I say or I'm going somewhere else. (laughs) My way or the highway. Right. Uh, So I said, no, this time, who knows David better than me? And who knows this industry as well as I do after seven books? He said, but if we do it, we have to do it right away for Christmas. So here we are in August. I got an intern to help, an intern who had great, great abilities with uh, InDesign. I told, because I don't know how to work InDesign any longer. I said, you know, I can't hire a graphic designer and then tell him exactly what to do. He'll tell me to fuck off. So I hired a student to come in and, and follow my direction. And uh, then we picked out the paper, then we picked out, I, I kept on sending it to David, and it took me, uh, thank God, a month. Mm, Unbelievable. So I just can't believe that. That's Everybody was saying, how many years have you been working on the book? Yeah. Along with help with the intern, I went to Mario's studio, brought everything out, and said, doing this picture, this picture, this one, and put it together. Did you have um, Mario and Vanina give it the once over? I sent it to them when I was done. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think they knew me well enough to finally separate me from just being their mother. You know, because in the past, Mara, you shouldn't do this, you do that, da 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 da. And now it was, I was very surprised. Mario called me and said, Ma, it's beautiful. Mm. You know, Vanina was like, oh, I can't believe this, Mom. And David from Idea Books said, this is fabulous. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to sound like, you know, wow, I did so, I'm so great. For those listening to the podcast, can you say the name of the book? The title of the book is David Sorrenti, Are You Ski? 1994 to 1997. And ski means see no evil. The book is sold out. 1,000 oh. copies are no longer available anywhere in the world. Really? And there's not a reprint happening? Well, today, strangely enough, I got an email from David saying, let's discuss reprint. Great. So we are thinking another 500. A friend of mine who's with Tom Sachs' wife, who in her own right works for Goshen, she said, go with someone big, where you do 5,000 copies, it's in every bookstore. And I said to her, I can't do that. I've made my commitment to David, you know, and the same goes with the, the, the documentary. And See No Evil is the name of the documentary as well. Yeah, oh, let's do a feature film. No, 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 no. I said, first of all, who would ever look like David? (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, the the exhibition was phenomenal. And then when the book came out in New York, it was sold out within an hour, less than an hour. There was a line that went around the block, but it didn't go around one block. It went around two blocks. The beginning of the crowd were young people, mm. and the and I was and they were buying the book, you know, twenty somethings. Well, the book the book is a cultural history of youth culture. Well, that's what I was finding. I said, "How do you know about David?" And uh, I've got all sorts of answers. One kid said, "Well, my professor at Pratt told me to look into it." 
Mm. Another one said, my older brother told me to look into it. Another one said, you know, someone brought me to see the film. So I got a lot of the film ones because the film, then you have to understand it was showing at Doc New York and it was supposed to show only one showing, but it was sold out within the first half hour. (laughs) And then they did two more. And then it went to the Torino Film Festival, which is the biggest in all of Italy, the um, TFF. And they were going to do the same thing, and it sold out. So it was very, very interesting. And what really surprised me in Italy was when we walked in, everybody was my age. (laughs) I mean, the majority. There were young people, but the majority were older people in their 60s. And and I'm like, oh, my God, they're all going to walk out. (laughs) (laughs) And instead... I got a standing ovation and and they came to, you know, shake my hand and say, oh, my God, this is so incredible. What an incredible story. You know, I was so overwhelmed. I couldn't stop crying. But I, I was going to say in regard to depression, four nights ago, my little Christmas tree that I had done for David, I just looked over and there was a, an ornament from Disneyland I couldn't stop crying. I I had to, I didn't want Steve to see, so I locked myself in the other room and I cried for about an hour. Couldn't stop. Um, I mean, I had said stop it, stop it, and never stopped. And that happened, you know, uh, David's with me every day. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, not only with me, but with my family. You know, we were on vacation. We must have mentioned David practically every night. And even Gray, Gray, or who never knew David. I mean, she's so inspired by him. Uh, who's, who, who is your granddaughter and who is a photographer as well? Yes, and she's like, you know, she laughs. She's got that same laugh like he has. She's got this crinkly chin like he has. They have the same eyes. Their yeah. hair coloring is the same. Even when they're in the sun, it turns like that reddish weird yeah. color. Yeah. I'm, you know, she has his personality. And Do you feel like doing the documentary and the book has actually helped you, though, personally, in terms of the whole situation with David? Do you think it's helped lift, like, you know, when you say you for depression, do you think it's helped lift that a little bit? But what it has done is it puts a smile on my face because David's back. Yeah. Yes. And he's alive again. You know, the other day I got a couple of checks that came in from, you know, the T-shirts, the the, yeah. the artwork, the book. And Steve said to me, he did say he'd take care of you. Is that the Model Suck T-shirt? <laughs> no, there's a couple of them. There's the, the Model Sucks. Then there's one of his film box. Right. The Kodak box. And then there's one of James King... Jamie, who's in front of a popcorn machine, which is sort of his iconic most sold shot. There was one of him. We made very few because it was one of our first ones was, oh, we did the one from the film that said, see no evil. And we only made a limited edition of that because it followed the film. 
and those sold out. And then we made one where David is wearing model socks. But that yeah. was shot by Roxanne Lowett. Yeah. So we, we made we made 50 T-shirts. With the book thing, we just ordered another 300 T-shirts because they're all sold out. We have an exhibition coming to London. Wow. Oh. When's that? March, April. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. So you'll be coming back. Yes. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yes. Right now I'm working on David's uh, the, uh, book, the catalog book of all the work that's in the show because we didn't have time to do a catalogue back then. So can people buy prints of his work? Yes. There will be another book, but his fashion work. Mm. Right. So it's going to only be of all his fashion pictures. That would probably come out in September. You're busy. (laughs) Fran, I've said this to you before, but your, your, your life story is so epic. I really hope one day you find the time to write your own story. I think we'd all we'd all love to read it. Mm -hmm. I used to be able to write. In fact, I was thinking about that last night. Just talk into a dictaphone and then and then have it transcribed. Well, you can have this transcribed. (laughs) 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 And then it can be the Netflix series. (laughs) Do you? Any of you write? Uh, Hello, Mr. Paluka writes. Okay. A lot. I'm not advertising myself, but I would love to. <laughs> You've got the whole story. But the only thing is, I think it should be a fiction based on reality. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Yeah. Or the other way around. Reality yeah. fiction. Because at first I was going to call it, what's a good Catholic school girl like you doing in town like that? Like <laughs> Well, because there's like, you know, the thing is this, you have to realize that a lot of things I didn't do because I was afraid. I am a scaredy cat, believe it or not. I find that hard to believe. So do I. You're pretty fearless in my mind. But if I wasn't a scaredy cat, do you know how much trouble I would get into? (laughs) It's my heritage of being born at a time when you were a street kid. Even though it was a well-to-do family... I mean, you know, at four or five years old in Brooklyn, you went out on the street. We lived in a, a little brownstone, and and we had we were a bunch of kids ranging from the ages, believe it or not, from three to ten. We were like the little rascals. You ever watch the little rascals? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what we were. We'd go out. We were this posse. We'd either run next door, somebody's backyard, who had swings and whatnot. Or we'd run, I mean, our days were pushing our baby carriages, uh, playing house, uh, climbing trees, uh, beating each other up. That's what I call street smarts. Or, you know, when I was five, we would walk to the corner. My mother, I'd say, Mom, I get a, My mother would give me 10 cents. And uh, we would be like two or three of us. Uh, we had to be because that's what our parents said. And we would walk to the corner, cross the street, ask someone to help us cross the street, which you can't do anymore because they might kidnap you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And we'd go to the five and dime store to buy penny candy, you know, or in the morning when I would get dressed for nursery school, if we didn't have milk and bread, I was four years old. My mom would send me downstairs with a dollar and I would pick up at the corner quart of milk and a loaf of bread, and four dogs that I would find on the street. (laughs) 
and bring them all home. <laughs> you know, if you th- if you look at history, look at child labor. I mean, there are little kids all over the world wa- working. Yeah. And what is not to say, you know, New York in the in the turn of the century, kids worked, but we were street smart. You learned how to survive at a young age. You know, I remember once a man trying to, you know, lure me in. And sadly, I went with him. And when I realized he was a pervert, I said to him when we got into the building, he said, look at the window because I have to pee. I knew at six years old that wasn't what people did. Yeah. So I said to him, hold it. Hold it and we'll, I'll come with you and we'll go find a bathroom. So we went down into the building, and he said, let's go to my car. And I said, you know what? My feet hurt. I'll wait here. You go get the car and come and get me. And he said, you're going to, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm going to wait here, you know. (laughs) He went to get the car, and I made one beeline. And and I knew he was somehow in my head. I knew he was going to look for me. So I ran behind a brownstone and hid behind a bush for an hour because I saw him coming back and forth with his car. So that's street smart. And then I moved to Naples. (laughs) (laughs) And that was a whole other upbringing. You know, all of a sudden you became this wheeler dealer. And also a certain violence there when... You've been confronted by people, you know. But even growing up in high school, I was in high school when integration started in my school. It was a predominantly Jewish high school. I'm not Jewish. It was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, a Jewish school, but very upscale. Jewish kids were the perfect prime target. And since I was not poor, everybody thought I was Jewish. So they try to pick on me, push me, you know, want to fight with me. And my dad and my mom, you know, taught me how to be a tomboy. My mm-hmm. dad taught me how to throw a punch. Yeah. And so as soon as someone would touch me, <laughs> I got suspended. I was this prim and proper girl. But do not touch me. You know, my mother was not well. And I had a miserable childhood. She was very religious. You know, watch who you talk. She didn't want me talking to anybody. I got hit a lot. I got hit a lot. But that was also, I have to say, the era. Italian mothers beat their kids. Mm. You know, it was the 50s. Yeah. All my friends friends got beat. Yeah. You know, whether it was a strap, the broom you know, punches, whatever, I got them. But I think now that she's gone, a couple of years ago, I said, you know what? All of that beatings made me strong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, made yeah. me get up and yeah, face it all. So, <laughs> I, you know, I said, Ma, thanks a lot. Even though it took me years to forgive you, I wouldn't be who I am today. A force to be reckoned with. Exactly. And that leads me on to, because I'm going to wrap up the interview a bit, but now I want to go on to just a little fun bit at the end, Fran, which is rapid fire questions. Just for a bit of fun, you can answer with one word, few words, sentence or divulge. But the first question I want to ask you is, 
Who would you like to play you in a film of your life? She's not alive anymore. Doesn't matter. Anna Magnani. <laughs> Anna Magnani? Love the Italian her. actress. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what about when you were young? Who would you like to play? Because it would be a film of your life. So Bridget Bardot. <laughs> 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 who could play me young Jesus somebody with chutzpah <laughs> who's the one from the actress from Love Story oh she was too naive <laughs> <laughs> she's an actress yeah, Andy Ma- naive. no no, no. Well, don't worry, our brains are fried it has to yeah. be somebody like I said chutzpah but the one who could have played me when she was younger would be Angelina Jolie in that movie where she is in rehab. Girl Interrupted. Yes. 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 Yeah, I get that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. What's your guilty pleasure? Television. Favourite TV show then? Oh, there's so many. I grew up with the goody two-shoes. You know, I wanted to get married and have a white picket fence and uh, I wanted to, you know, marry the boy next door. That was my reality. I am a little bit of uh, an anglophite when it comes to uh, television. I don't care what anybody says. Down Abbey took me to another dimension. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show. You know, have you watched The Crown? I am uh, on the first part of it. Uh, I watch Endeavor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like I, Endeavor. <laughs> I do. You know, I, I do like. I do watch a lot of uh, series that are from Netflix, and you like a box set. Yeah, like I will unfortunately binge watch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Steve will walk in. What are you doing? It's four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Did you see Stranger Things? Yes, I love Stranger Me Things. Me too. That's TV. What's your favourite food? Sushi followed by pork sausages and mashed potatoes followed up by broccoli rob. And then, of course, you know, I'm not going to say favourite because it's part of my life is pasta. I was so, waiting for that to be your first answer, actually. No, but, but you can't. Being Italian and living in Italy, you can't say pasta. It's, it's in your... It's there. Have you ever done anything illegal? You really want me to say this on a podcast? That you can talk about. I've stolen. Is that all you're going to divulge? (laughs) I've stolen when I was 18. Because everybody was doing it, of course. (laughs) (laughs) You would do it with three or four girls. And you were taking away from the rich. (laughs) And giving to the poor. (laughs) But that was short-lived because it's... I always knew that no matter what I did that was bad, that if I continued doing it, I'd get caught. So I was a one-timer. Okay, one last question. If you could be invisible for the day, what would you do and where would you go? That's a good question. I would go visit Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace. I Just to see how... That world functions, you know. Either well, there, it's not there, functioning very well at the moment. No, <laughs> either there or go see the Pope. As you're Italian, though, because <laughs> it's like no, but I would go see the Pope because it really freaks me out. Well, not maybe this Pope, but the old Pope who would get in the tub and get washed 
and then get dressed by, you know, other men, you know, and, and people would kiss his ring. And I find that all really, uh, maybe that's because... Homoerotic. <laughs> I find the whole thing of idolizing the Pope and the Queen and the presidents, I find it weird. I find it that we bow down to people and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that... Uh, we give them money and, you know, even the Angelus preachers, you know, I just, it blows me away that, yeah, you know, this whole thing about God. When David died, I was brought to church by three models that we all know very well. And I went and the priest, I have to say, was so amazing. He gave such, he was such a cool man. He was young. He gave such a cool sermon. And, you know, it's funny. He goes, we pass a phone booth and we see an image of a girl wearing Calvin Klein. And we say, oh, I hate that. And we throw that word around so easily. And I'm like, I'm sitting in a sermon. And someone has mentioned Calvin Klein. (laughs) (laughs) And then the highlight of the um, sermon was King David. And I was like, what am I doing here? He's talking about (laughs) King David. Oh, do you know what it is, Fran? It's your life. It's from religion to fashion. And then when I I left, I said, you know, can I talk to you? I mean, I've got issues. You know, my son just passed away and I'm just, I'm not religious, but I need to talk to somebody. And he said, you could come whenever you, you want. I said, wow, that is so cool. I said, when? And he goes, whenever you want to. And I'm like, okay, just just ring the bell. And I rang the bell a week later, and he talked to me, and he said, you know, you have to look at religion a different way. You have to see it as, he said, you go to the gym, you work out for your body. You can walk into any house of worship and just sit there, work your soul, because you are conditioned even if you're an atheist, you are conditioned since you were little to know about God. So you can sit there and you can find peace. You don't have to talk to God. You just sit there and find your peace. And that is your workout for your soul. And that was amazing. It's funny you say that, that one of the models was called Erin because she is going to be on this podcast series too. I have a, I'm actually sorting out her interview right now, so I so will So you ask should her say, this. do you know Francesca Sorrenti? I will. I think she I might do, don't you? No, I, I have to say I, I can't remember the redhead. What's her Maggie? name? Maggie. Maggie. Yes. Maggie, the three of them, they were roommates in New York at right. the time. Yeah, I remember. And they had helped me so so much. You know, with the friendship, with the, and yeah. and then them being so young, and I helped them so much because, you know, they were going through their own stuff with boyfriends and mm. and um, agencies, you yeah. know. Just being young, right? They were and they were young so young. Uh, you know, when I was talking about drugs to the young girls in the industry, you know, I never joined. Just say no. Mm. Because you say, just say no, that opens a whole can of worms, okay? (laughs) 
You know, I, I, my thing was always drug awareness. Tell them about drug awareness. Talk to them also about personality. What's your personality like? Basically, there's the follower. There's the the one who says, oh, I could do it once and say never again. And then there's the kind, you know, oh, I want to be part of the party. Yeah. You know, and all these three groups, I mean, there are others, but these three are the main groups that can find themselves in shit because, you know, they're, they think they're infallible. Yeah. Um. And no matter how much experience you have, you're not. Yeah. You know, I helped a girl. I can't mention her name. We got her to come into my house. It was such a strategic thing. It was like she was in my loft upstairs. There was um, Richard Lohr had a studio, photo studio. And we made it look like she was going to have a go-see there. David had passed, and everybody was on the phone. I we Thank God there were cell phones. And they would tell me when she would get into the elevator, and I would push the button so it would stop on my floor before it went all the way up. And when I saw her, I said, oh, hi, why don't you come in? You know, it would be wonderful to see you. And, you know, she was really in a bad way. She came in, and... I tried to talk to her, and I mean, it got sort of violent at one point. You know, who the fuck do you think you are to me? You know, uh, I do what I fucking want to do. And then at one point, I just said, you know, I said, this is the wrong thing to do. I just turned around and said, listen, what I, this is what I want to know. Are you still enjoying yourself and having fun? And she was so into it that she said, no, I'm in pain. And I think instead of saying, don't do it, or uh, try to go here, try to do this, saying, how do you feel, really made her think. Yeah. You know, she says, I haven't felt good in a long time. I just need it. And then she said to me, I said, so do you think you're ready to go to rehab? And she said, well, after you said this, yes. Mm. In the meantime, her mother and her booker are behind the wall, in another room. The car to take her to rehab is waiting downstairs. Mm. So she decides to go to rehab. She goes down, and she starts to cross the street and not go into the car. And I said, oh, my God, she's running. Because I had these big windows in my loft. And instead, she went to a trash can, and she threw something away, and then she went into the car. Now, two years later, she was having a birthday, and she invited me, and uh, a lot of people from the industry and whatnot, and she turned around and she said, you know, I'd like to thank a person here who, if she didn't do what she did, I would have died. She saved my life. So I'm looking around, I'm like, and it was me, you know, and she said, Francesca. And I started to cry because, you know, even if you help one, two, three, four people, 
in the big picture. I think you helped a lot of people, Fran. Yeah. Yeah. Um, makes me think that David did that. Yeah. You know, David was here for a purpose. I, I yeah. hate to sound mushy, mm-hmm. but he was here for a purpose because nobody, if you saw the film, could have done what he did without being here for a purpose. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm. Well, Fran, thanks so much for well, talking about you. this. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. That, that was amazing. It's yeah. six o'clock. That was so good. I know. We've been chatting for ages. <laughs> that was incredible, <laughs> Fran. Thank though. you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to In Bed with Neil Moody with my guest, Francesca Sorrenti. You can follow Fran on her Instagram at Francesca Sorrenti underscore Sorrenti with two R's and one N. The David Sorrenti book is called Argue SKE 1994-1997, published by Ideas Books, with up-and-coming exhibition dates to be announced. The documentary film about David's life is titled See No Evil and is available on numerous platforms. If you want to get in bed with me again and another of my guests, then you can subscribe to my podcast on all the regular platforms to ensure that you don't miss an episode. There are other episodes, including all of Series 1, already available to listen to straight away. Thanks for listening.